0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Welcome to episode 665 with my return guest, Daparna Nancherla. Uh, my name's Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, which is a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to just simply... Everyday, compulsive, negative thinking. And this show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. Um, and speaking of uh, the waiting room at the therapist's office, that's the the name for our Zoom group through through Patreon. Uh, we had another great session, talked a lot uh, about a variety of, of different things and a lot of vulnerability and, and support. Now Every week it just seems to kind of... Uh, grow, uh, emotionally. So if you're, if you're interested in joining us, it's, um, for the people at the $20 and above Patreon subscription or donation level. And it's every Sunday, four to 530 Pacific time, uh, on zoom. And it's, it's really cool. And I got a lot of support there cause I'm going through some shit. Um, a lot of insomnia. I'm hoping the, uh, Gabapentin, my psychiatrist, uh, has prescribed will, will help. Um, insomnia is a motherfucker because you lay down and you're like now i'm anxious that i'm not going to be able to fall asleep and i've never had uh, i've had guests on before when they talked about anxiety and they say they, it's a feeling like someone's sitting on your chest or you can't take a deep breath and i've begun experiencing that and it's it's so weird because it feels like you have a bruise in your in your chest not fun and speaking of Patreon, we are about halfway towards our goal of getting 1,500 monthly donors. We're at 784, and we need help. There's there's no two ways around it. One of the things that I'm I'm having to consider doing, which I've I've never done because I just don't like how jolting it is. But I'm sure you've heard the pre-recorded ads before and after the podcast, where it's an an announcer for a product. It's not me talking about a product but it's an announcer, and I've limited it to those uh, so far to just being before the podcast and after the podcast, because I don't like the jolt of that vibe of all of a sudden a different voice coming in. But financially, uh, we we are really struggling, and that might be an option for me to do is to begin to accept ads read by somebody else within the podcast. And I guess all of that is saying, don't hate me. Don't abandon me. I don't want to die alone. (laughs) Is is that dramatic? This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey written uh, by a woman who calls herself Little Bloop. She writes, when it comes to therapy, I find that I have trouble getting to the deeper, more in-depth topics and traumas I feel, feel are unresolved. Most of the therapists I've seen tell me that I've, quote, graduated, unquote, therapy after I get the initial crisis phase uh, is over, panic attacks, trouble sleeping, etc. Or we discuss a topic for one session and then talk about it further. I've told therapists when I begin to see them that the reason I want to see them is to work through unresolved trauma. I feel like I could get, get a lot out of therapy, but not sure how. Do you have any suggestions for this? Well, the one thing I know, because I'm not a therapist, but the one thing I do know is keep seeking, keep trying different things, different modalities, you know, whether it's EMDR or, or, or somatic experiencing or cognitive behavioral therapy. Although I don't think CBT is going to, going to work on a buried trauma, but somatic experiencing is really good because a lot of times trauma is buried in there and it's nonverbal, uh, and talking endlessly about it is, is not going to, to do that. Same with, um, uh, the modality EMDR, it can help with the the nonverbal stuff that's, that's trapped in there. So overall, just keep trying. And if you hit a wall with the therapist, be honest about them, about what's going on. And if it doesn't get better, try something else. You know, I also am a big fan of meditating, yoga. Theoretically, I'm a fan of yoga. Every morning I wake up, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm going to do some yoga today. I can't even remember the last time I did it. So I hope, uh, I hope that helps. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by Emily Cries Often. Um, that was a big hit in the 60s, wasn't it? That was Pink Floyd before David Gilmour joined them. Uh, the Voice in Her Head, she writes, I am a useless, empty human being who has nothing to offer anyone or anything. And... You know, I just want to say that that very struggle, that very voice that you have in your head is the thing, if you begin to connect to other people around issues like this, that voice, being honest about that voice in your head can be the very thing that you can offer to someone else, which is the feeling that they're not alone, for you to have a conversation about how you're both feeling that way, or for them to support you, and then you to support them with what they're experiencing and even if neither of you have experience in what the other person is struggling with just listening to that person being there for them is huge and that my friend i think is what it's is what it's all about this is from the love survey filled out by Anita Snack i see what you did there she writes, "I love the chirp sound and body twist my cat does when he realizes it that it's just Mama wanting to give him pets in the middle of his nap." I, I do love cat noises. Um, my girlfriend's cat's name is is Pablo, and uh, he's a little standoffish. When I walk in the door, he does that that meow, and I don't know what that means. Is that a hello? Is that a get the fuck out of here? You know, is it is that a oh no not him again? Uh, She writes, I love that I still believe seeing a cardinal brings you good luck, just as I was told they do when I was a kid. I love the beginning of a friendship when the other person matches my goofball antics and I feel seen and safe to be myself. I love that one. I love how much my husband loves the humility of the ocean and how quickly he can ground me by reminding me, look at the ocean. None of this matters as we float and ride the waves. And then he dunks my head under the water, and I fight for my life. I might have added that last part. That reminds me. I was—I told you about the insomnia. And Saturday night, my girlfriend was over, and she's sound asleep, and I'm laying in bed, and it's—it's it's probably six in the morning, and I've just been, you know, my mind racing, and I and I was like she loves you. She wants to support you. She would want you to wake her up and tell her that you need help. And I woke her up and I said, I don't know what I'm, I'm asking for, but I'm struggling right here. Whether you can just suggest something for me to think about to ease my mind or just give me, give me some love. And she said, I want you to think about that time that we were in the ocean and it was nice and warm, and it was sunny, and we took turns where we would, uh, we took turns hold each other, and, and just relax and float. And I said, held. Because <laughs> that's what somebody wants is to be corrected about their English. She's, she's English is not her, her native language. And then I immediately saw, what a fucking dick. I was being and I apologized and we both laughed and then I dunked her head under the water now it was it was I felt proud in that moment even though I was struggling with the insomnia that I have gone to enough support group meetings and done enough therapy to know If you have people in your life that love you and are rooting for you, give them an opportunity to help you, even if it doesn't work. The very act of asking for something that's reasonable and giving them the opportunity to love you is, it's amazing. She also writes, I love the smell of fresh baked bread pouring out of the air vents of a bakery that is an awesome one especially when you smell like butter cookies i think every bakery smells like butter cookies uh, and she writes i love popcorn anywhere anytime really anywhere at any time what about a wake you're gonna stand crunching over the over the casket cheese cheese popcorn falling out of your mouth on the person's embalmed face what about a pap smear just chewing on some caramel corn hey hey doc how's it look down there how's she running this is from the happy moment survey and this is filled out by our friend little boop she writes, I'm normally a happy, cheerful person. I love to sing to my music when I'm driving, but I also suffer from PMDD, which means for me that for about one week out of the month, i become extremely depressed. The happy moment comes when after a week or so of driving with my music at a very low volume, I find myself singing full blast to my music once again. I love that one. Sometimes we don't even know we're in a good mood until we're, we're singing to the music. Uh, this is from the religious abuse slash trauma uh, survey, and this is filled out by Pepito El Chinchilla, or is it Chinchilla? I don't know. I know we pronounce it Chinchilla. And Pippito writes, in the mid-90s at age eight or nine, my mother took me to a Catholic church since that was her chosen religion. I hated sitting in a building with people I didn't want to know while listening to someone talk about a book they think they understand. This experience was actually a breath of fresh air and potentially enjoyable right up until I saw something I don't think I was meant to. After service, my mother left me with the teen group while she did confession. This group dispersed about five minutes after I joined them. I took this time to walk around and take in the sights, and I aimlessly walked behind a curtain, not knowing what was on the other side. At that moment, after walking in, I saw a priest talking to a young boy, maybe 10 or 11. His hand rested on the boy's shoulder, and without warning, effortlessly, effortlessly slid down his back and found placement on the butt of this young boy. Suddenly, the boy shook his head and walked off right as the priest noticed me. He simply smiled at me and walked by, patting me on the head as he went. I successfully found every excuse not to go back. Have your experiences affected how you view that specific religion or organized religion as a whole? Even at a young even at a young, it says even at a young ago, I think he meant to type age, I realized that we are all human and most don't give a shit about anything outside of our own agenda. Um, I think a lot of us have felt that way or currently feel, feel that way, that the world is just filled with bloodsuckers and what's the point? And it's a it's a sad way to it's a sad way to live when you feel like that's the 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 truth. But I I don't believe that everybody is like that. Um, I just don't. But um, thank you, thank you for uh, for sharing that. You know, I was my Wednesday night support group meeting is next door to a church that is I think it's Pentecostal. I'm not sure what it is, but there is a guy in there who in the middle of our meeting, and this is in the building next door, he begins preaching, and he preaches as if he is trying to rally people to go light torches and kill someone. Not the words, his tone of voice. It's so angry. And I was just like, who, who wants their idea of God to be Gordon Ramsay? Of all the religions you can choose, why would you want to listen to somebody who's just yelling? I don't get it. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what is When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
0: Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit carvana.com today.
1: And then finally, this is from the struggle in a sentence survey, and this is filled up by a woman who calls herself me, and her struggle is living with an abuser. And a snapshot from her life, she writes, I told my mother that I had decided to leave my boyfriend, and her first response was, he doesn't even hit you. My consciousness might be disintegrated
0: heavy weighted blanket on my brain symptomatically and I can't think straight things present themselves for a reason and I can't see straight I couldn't even drive
1: the first movie that I remember watching with him
0: post-traumatic stress I was
1: like five years old was Pulp Fiction and moral injury I
0: would act out the scenes gonna go to hell with my Barbies
1: the greatest source of our suffering Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens Is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions it Is
0: very hard to heal in dark isolation
1: I developed compassion
0: It is in connection and community where that happens
1: The process was nearly unbearable Like, I'm gonna have to kill myself We'll be right back after this <laughs> I am here with a uh, return guest, Parna Nancherla Is it Nanchurla or Nanchurla?
0: I tell people it's Nanchurla, like man with an N, but honestly, I don't know if that's right. Even South Asian people don't really know how to say my last name.
1: (laughs) People ask me, is it Gilmartin or Gilmartin? And I was like, I've never even thought about it. Oh,
0: yeah. That slight emphasis difference. Welcome. Thank you.
1: Welcome back.
0: Thanks for having me back.
1: And uh, I'm I'm excited to talk about imposter syndrome. You've you've got a book out, um, yes. me myself, and imposter syndrome, yeah. and uh, it's really kind of nice and confessional and funny. And oh, uh, thanks, Paul. I love when when people write things and say out loud. The things that most of us would be like, oh, I I can't let people know (laughs) that about me. That to me is like...
0: I think that was the idea of writing a book because I, I, you know, I've done stand-up around my experiences with anxiety and depression, but it felt like a book was kind of a way to explore some of these things I wrestle with in a less, you know, polished way because I feel good stand-up, you need kind of that concision to get from the setup to the punchline. You can't Mm -hmm. really get into the gray areas. So I... I wanted to maybe be able to do something that was with less resolution.
1: And I th- maybe I'll just speak for myself, but I think a lot of stand-up comedians have this desire to delve deeper into our issues that are difficult to make funny and concise yes. on stage. Yeah. And there's something, um, I don't know, very validating about getting it out there and saying, yeah. this is the real deep dive.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think the fear for me was, you know, I, I knew ahead of time it wasn't going to be like a straight comedy book. I know a lot of comedians write, you know, just funny essays, and I was like, this is going to be a little different. So I I, I there's a little hesitation putting out, out into the world just in that it's not really something people associate with me of being a more serious writer, but you know, try anything once.
1: Yeah. Uh, how about reading uh, an excerpt to, to, sure. to kick things off?
0: I kind of picked something from the first essay that's just kind of an overview. Uh, let's see. Here we go. Okay. I decided to write about my imposter syndrome, burrow into its uncomfortable depths, spoon with formative childhood trauma and see what came up. Fun! Though the joke's on me, the so-called comedian, because it turns out nothing summons your imposter syndrome like trying to write a book about it. The whole operation quickly escalated reverse Captain Planet style into some real fuck shit. Did I use that word correctly, Gen Z Angel, who is reading this for a research project on Elder Millennials? The requisite team members all assembled. Shame, insecurity, fear, sadness, heart. Yeah, yeah, heart got steamrolled on the other team, too. I couldn't tell where I ended and where the POSUER, classy, began. Because weren't the two identities one and the same? But... Seriously, my dear pudding forks and salad spoons, I foolishly thought that writing about my own imposter syndrome would cure it, that in interrogating it, I might arrive somewhere more enlightened, and dare I say, reformed. It was the old exposure therapy belief. If you put yourself through the fire, you will come out forged in armor. Who even said that? It sounds like someone's dad misquoting someone else's dad. (laughs) Save it for the stock poster on the wall of the UFC gym. Here's what actually went down. First, a bunch of psychic wounds from the 80s and 90s opened in me like a less fun evil dead hell portal and threatened to suck my entire sense of self into them quietly and efficiently, Dyson style. Aspirational product placement, need a free back. I'm not saying my baggage won per se, but it certainly made some great points. Point A, me lying face down on the floor. Point B, me again, crying smarter, not harder. I couldn't help but listen to them. Plus, when you are writing a book, you are spending hours and hours alone with yourself. Who better to keep you company than the destructive voice in your head like a version of Siri set to destroy mode? (laughs) The journey itself proved more of a labyrinth than I imagined, and not the cool kind that ends in forbidden treasures or cheese. Early on, my editor commented that I was qualifying all my own views to death. I refused to hold an opinion and stand by it because I kept coming back to my brain's excellent reminder that I didn't know what I was talking about. But if I did think I knew what I was talking about, I wouldn't be qualified to write a book about my personal experience with imposter syndrome. Now would I?
1: What brought about the the decision to, to do this? Was there an idea that I want to write a book? first and then searching for a title or a subject or was the subject so in the forefront?
0: I think the desire to write a book had always been there and the the topic came to me kind of naturally in that I was struggling at that point in my life with performing comedy and I'd sort of reached a point of the most success I had ever had up to that point and it, it was something I think a lot of people experience where you kind of get to the The version of the dream that you never expected and then it didn't you know fix everything and if anything I felt more anxiety about more anxiety about performing and more depression about just like reaching this goal and it not having all the answers for me so then I think I started to want to explore these feelings more of still not quite feeling like I fit in or or you know could keep up with people around me and kind of being suspicious of the success to begin with, kind of yeah. like the Groucho Marx, like who would want to have me in this club? Like I kind of now don't trust the club anymore. Right. Yeah.
1: the the What are what are some of the highlights of your career that you dreamed about? I know you do stuff on NPR, which is mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. cool.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a you yeah. know a very cultivated audience.
1: Yeah. <laughs> what. What were some of the uh, specific dreams and things you imagined about when when they happened?
0: Yeah, I mean, I had up until that point, I had um, I think I'd filmed a special for I had done a half hour special for Comedy Central. And then I think I had just done one for Netflix as well. And I had released an album in the past year. And I think I had sold a script with a friend and, and also gotten a chance to act on a TV show that my friends made. So I think I think all of it, you know, it was like so many things that I couldn't have imagined. Those are
1: checking all the boxes. Yeah,
0: yeah. It was like everything. And I think it's also that thing of, you, you, you know, showbiz is a lot of times feast or famine. So it was almost like too many things to process at once, let alone one. Like even one of those things, I'd be like, do I deserve to be here? And then I think. Five of the th- five of those things at the same time, you're just like, well, something has truly gone awry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what are the ripples mm. of imposter syndrome for you personally? I mean, obviously, it's going on in your head. Yeah does it does it kind of uh, ripple out in a way that affects your relationships or your work? you know how or is it just all internal
0: I think it ripples out in that I often like in situations I'm and I think a lot of people with maybe social anxiety deal with this where you're kind of watching yourself in the situation so a part of you is always maybe detached and sort of observing and evaluating rather than actually trying to be present or connecting with the people around you so I feel like those imposter feelings do the same thing where I'm always kind of stacking up other people's behavior compared to mine or like how they're Mm -hmm. treating a situation versus how I am. And, you know, people's outsides usually don't match their insides. So it's not (laughs) it's not usually an accurate gauge. But, you know, even when I've been, yeah, like in a writing room or something, I'll be like, everyone else seems so much more comfortable than I do, and (laughs) you know, quick witted, And what am I doing? And then I'm just, you know, fully consumed with that instead of actually trying to be engaged with what's going on.
1: Do you think you can separate self-obsession and imposter syndrome?
0: I I don't know. I mean, I, al- I always think of sometimes like even my depression as a form of narcissism. It's just like the negative kind, right? It's like I don't think I'm the best. I think I'm the worst, but that's like all I think about all the time. And that's still like a very self, like a navel-gazy thing. So I do I- – I think something I've been trying to work on since writing the book is just – sometimes getting out of my own way and kind of focusing on other people and like what they're doing and giving myself less uh weight in the situation to begin mm-hmm. with not in a not in a way where i'm discrediting myself but just like there's more going on than just like the you know the soap opera in your brain
1: it's so true and and what does connection look like for you when it feels um like energizing in a good way or, or at the very least calming or just a break from yourself?
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm an introvert, uh, tried and true. So I think for me, it is those, you know, one-on-one or smaller group interactions with like close friends that, you know, I don't, I, I don't have the like little red book of numbers and numbers. I'm more just the like three or four, uh, ride or die types, but Um, Yeah, I think just like a good conversation with a friend or like uh, a little get together like those I find very like those kind of remind me of like, what really brings me satisfaction. And I think as a performer, you, at least when you start, you're sort of like I, this audience is what is feeding me. But I mean, at this point in my life, I'm like, this is my job, and I'm very grateful I get to do it. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's those close relationships that I think sustain me.
1: Any particular conversations come to mind where there was vulnerability or, you know, some type of connection? And I guess one of the reasons I'm asking is I get on my soapbox a lot on this podcast about the power of human connection and community and support, um, because it's it's such a great soother, at least for many of us, Yeah. for all of those internal battles and, and obsessions. And we never, I don't know about you, but I have never predicted going to a party and having a meaningful conversation that brings me a <laughs> sense of connection and peace. <laughs> right. It's always going to be, it's going to oh, be awkward. Yeah. I'm going to be bored. I'm going to run into somebody I can't stand. It's all catastrophizing. So for you, what what are some specifics, if you can remember any?
0: I I think for me, it's whenever someone shows me that part of themselves that's also like very uncomfortable in that situation or we're also just, you know, like struggling to keep their head up like that with the metaphor with the duck, like paddling underneath the water, but looking fine on the surface. Like I think whenever people show a little bit of that uh, doubt or um, insecurity themselves, I find that very grounding and I also just, uh, you know, having been in entertainment and comedy for quite a while now, I, I'm friends with a lot of people also in the business. And I do think that can bring up weird issues in relationships, you know, with either jealousy or, um, you know, you're happy your friend got something, but you're also like, I wish I got that or whatever it is. And I feel like figuring out outlets for those sort of messier feelings that maybe make you feel guilt at the same time is really important to not just bottle those up and pretend they're not there.
1: Uh, the The first time you were on the podcast, which I think was in 2013, we talked about depression and anxiety and you being uh, a first generation uh, Indian American. Mm-hmm. Um, your parents uh, high-achieving, yes. super successful, both doctors?
0: Both doctors, yes. yeah.
1: Um, how do you feel that, that you, you know, you referenced in the passage that you read about um, things from your past, what yeah. are what are some snapshots of kind of those moments or those issues that you, you feel like have kind of informed who you are or how you see yourself or the world?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think especially early on, there were maybe those feelings a lot of first generation immigrant kids have where you either, you know, don't have the same clothes your peers have or you don't follow the same references they have or you bring, you know, something to school that's like weird food compared to everyone else. Like, I think there are just those obvious sticking points of being an outsider that I flagged early on. But I think I also grew up in that sort of immigrant Assimilationist era where, especially as an Asian American, it's sort of just like keep your head down, do the work, don't make, don't point too much attention at yourself, which is interesting to then end up in stand up because it is very much like, look at me. So I think I've always kind of toggled between this thing of like, look at me, but don't look at me, like where I want to fit in and be heard and be seen. But then if it's like too much attention or I feel like I'm being, making myself too big. There's like a lot of shame that comes with that and sort of fear of being, yeah, again, found out.
1: Right. I want to be looked at, but I want to control yes. the, 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 the rules yeah, yeah, of the yeah. ways that I'm looked at. Yes. Uh, if you have a, a, a show where you bomb, although I imagine it probably doesn't happen anymore because you, oh. you're, you're no,
0: <laughs> no, no, that's okay. not true.
1: <laughs> uh, or let's say you have an amazing show, um, Talk about how, what the next 24 hours looks like and is there a difference between the the 24 hours after a bomb or crushing it?
0: The weird thing is I still, you know, get a lot of anxiety before I perform. It's in a more manageable form these days than it has maybe in the past. But I will say, and this is something I've discussed in therapy at length, but sometimes I actually find it more uncomfortable to sit, in the feelings of a good set. Because I think it it's both the feeling of like. Oh I pulled one over on these people. Or like will I ever be able to recreate that. It was clearly like a lightning strike. Like something that will only happen once. And it, like I think the, that expectation. Creating any sense of expectation in people. I think puts more fear in me. Than just like oh yeah this went bad. Because they, they could actually see you clearly for once.
1: <laughs> it. It is amazing how creative the mean part of the brain is. I don't know if there is an artist in the world as creative as the mean part of the brain.
0: I mean, I think I was also partly, that's why I was like, write this book. I was like, if you have so much to say, you do something with it. (laughs) Uh,
1: Do you have another passage picked out that you could read for us? I don't.
0: I mean, I could pull one up at random, but... um... Yeah, I don't something, know. Something,
1: um, you know, one of the things I like on this podcast is when people say things out loud that the average person would be like, I can't believe they just said that out loud. Is oh. there is there a passage uh, that you have there where maybe it's a side of yourself that you feel like is, I don't know, ugly or pathetic or embarrassing Um um, if not no 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 problem I don't I don't want to put you put you on the spot
0: trying to think there is I also feel like my relationship to the book is very uh tortured because I think I I've I think this happens with any creative work but it's like I've looked at it and sat with it for so long that I sort of on some level feel <laughs> disgusted by it so <laughs> I think I I, I, I don't remember like what is where because I think I was sort of like yeah it's out it's gonna be out in the world but that yeah. that's kind of it's the, it's your problem now.
1: Well then let me ask you this: Are there some things that you can share other than imposter syndrome that you have oh, yeah, revealed yeah. in the book? Yeah, like,
0: like one thing I do talk about that I don't think I've ever discussed on stage is that I sort of feel like I fall somewhere on the asexual spectrum in terms of not really feeling maybe as motivated by sex as a lot of people. And I think early on in my life, kind of attributing that to like, oh, I'm a late bloomer. I just don't know things yet. Or I like, am a little bit maybe shy or retiring when it comes to those things. But then uh, realizing now that I think it's just something that's not a priority for me, maybe in the same way with other people and, and kind of trying, being able to be open about that in the relationship I'm in and, and being, not not having it feel like something I have to cure or fix. Um, that's,
1: that's awesome, because when we've touched on that topic in the podcast uh, in the beginning, I handled it as if this is something that needs to be fixed. And mm. people who identify as ace, as they as they yeah, call it, yeah. would write in and say, you know, I'm happy being this way please don't refer to this as something like it's an issue and that that kind of woke me up
0: yeah i mean i read a book uh i think called ace uh written by a researcher and and she was saying that it is there is you know the way there's like heteronormativity in society there's also also like compulsory sexuality which is just this belief that everyone needs sex like if you don't want it, there's some, you know, issue that needs addressing. And, you know, there probably is that because there is so much trauma going around around like body and consent and and things that have happened to people. But but I think, yeah, it's important to distinguish that there is also just a preference. And like some people are just yeah, on the like libido spectrum or the attraction spectrum like that is also just a wide range.
1: How about uh, non-sexual intimacy yeah Uh, is is that something that you enjoy and seek out and and get uh pleasure from you know whether it's cuddling up on a couch watching a movie you know uh etc etc talk talk about that aspect of a relationship Yeah, i mean
0: i think touch is still very important like i think i i enjoy touch and i enjoy yeah that kind of intimacy but yeah i think i it just doesn't always need to escalate to sex and I think even even like kissing and stuff, I think I just don't uh, – it doesn't feel like a need in the way I hear other people talk about it.
1: Uh, one of the things that, that I discovered, and, and I'm sure a lot of people probably feel this way when they're in a relationship, if they're physically not in the mood um, for sex, but they want to feel closeness mm-hmm. – um, there's been a couple of times in my relationship where I've said, uh, you know, I want to be affectionate, but I don't feel like having mm. sex tonight. And the thing that I found that was interesting is I got turned on by that <laughs> lack of pressure. And I think there's something that's key in there about yeah. giving ourselves the freedom to not have to commit to something is that is that something that that kind of yeah. resonates with
0: you at all I mean I do think also for like heterosexual cis women there is this you know model of what uh sexuality should look like for you where it's like yeah if you want sex you should be like turned on you should be experienced but not too experienced like there's all these mixed messages you're getting so I do think just this uh idea that you're going to be like the perfect partner or like available whenever your partner wants to be sexual with you like i think that that turns into a whole mind game of like do i feel like doing this or am i just like trying to fulfill my partner's needs like it it turns into a whole thing which ends up being you know a huge libido kill so i think taking that pressure away is really important in terms of being able to really tune into what you want
1: does your uh and then you don't have to answer this if you, if you're not feeling comfortable, but does your partner ever feel frustrated or confused?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's something we're still trying to negotiate in our relationship, but I do feel like he's the first person that I've been able to have like an open conversation about it with. I think we're trying to figure out kind of what the terms are of it and if that means like you know if he gets sexual fulfillment outside of our relationship like that that is something we've talked about, and I think. We're still figuring out the terms, so I don't want to speak on. Do you find his... a lawyer? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're going to a libido get, we're lawyer. We're going to get it all on paper and and signed um, along with <laughs> dual NDAs. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I I think it is uh, you know a topic that doesn't get a lot of airtime in society. So mm. we're kind of figuring it out on our own timeline.
1: And the idea of him uh, fighting sex outside of your relationship Mm. was that something you brought up he brought up um what just as you think about that kind of what what are your thoughts and feelings on, on that
0: yeah i mean i think part of it is like we haven't really talked about it except between us in that it feels like something that other people put a lot of projections on like having an open relationship or um not having an active sex life so i think we've sort of kept it between us for now but um i think for us it, it is like you know any relationship is about meeting both people's needs and if my need is not needing sex as much and sex is still very important to him i don't want part of him having to be in a relationship with me being have to, having to give up sex like that doesn't feel fair to ask of him
1: talk about your friendship uh uh-uh with him, that aspect, you know, kind of the partnership, being part of a of a team, is that something that is on your radar when you enter into a relationship?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's where the real intimacy for me comes from, is just feeling really understood and comfortable with another person. I think I tend to be very guarded and sometimes have trust issues with people that even close friends. So I think, He is, you know, unquestionably probably the person I'm closest to in my life, and I think that sort of safety and security is, like, really fragile for me to build. So I think it feels like there's no one else fulfilling that role in my life.
1: Is that what the fragility is about? Is that... If this doesn't work there's you know it's going to be 10 years before I find somebody who's going to be I don't know my friend
0: that. I think it's just that I take a long time to open up so then like building that foundation with someone it feels very uh valuable
1: What are some of the parts if any that you want to to hide when you get into a relationship where maybe you feel like the other person's going to run or it's going to harm the relationship
0: I mean, I think in previous relationships, the the sex thing has been maybe a thing that I've felt shame about or wondered, like, why I'm not able to kind of match, sync up with the other person in terms of needs. Um, I think also just showing uh, sides that are, I think, anger. Sometimes I have trouble expressing in a certain way or even sadness. But I feel like with my current partner, we we are, I'm able to kind of go to those places with him and I, and I have trouble doing that with other people in my life. So it feels, that's why the bond maybe feels different.
1: When you were, were growing up, um, was having outward feelings kind of discouraged?
0: Yeah, I think I grew up around maybe like not the healthiest version of, of expressing anger or, you know, holding sadness. Like it, it was kind of like, anger would kind of blow through and you couldn't always predict what the repercussions it would have. And then sadness, it was kind of like, okay, let's not show this to too many people. It's kind of like ugly and it's bringing everyone down. So I think there wasn't really space created for, for processing those things or really saying like, these are valid emotions and, Mm -hmm. and everyone has them.
1: How is the depression and anxiety today?
0: I mean, they're still going strong, cooking along. Um, yeah, the the anxiety, I will say, is um, still ever-present. And I think, uh, you know, I still wake up most days with, with a lot of dread. But I find now, like, once I get out of bed or, you know, do something that's either like moving my body or doing a meditation, that kind of helps me get on a on a different track, in and you know, I I did those things for a long time, and they didn't help as much. So obviously, like meds and therapy have aided those things as well. Um, but yeah, anxiety—I still get a lot of it with performing. But uh, I took a break from performing while I was writing the book, and that ended up like coinciding with the pandemic and stuff. But I ended up taking like a three-year break from stand-up and have only come back to it in the past year. And I actually feel like that break helped my anxiety more than anything else did up until that point. And three years feels like, even to say it feels a little bit like fear-inducing because I know as a stand-up it's kind of like you just get back on stage, you just take the next set, and you keep going. But I, I think stepping away from it is honestly... The best thing I've ever done. I think
1: it can really help give uh, clarity. Yeah, I think it's it's, uh, you know, kind of the analogy of the forest from the trees. I think when we're doing our act three times a week, 40 weeks a year. We kind of forget what's funny about certain jokes or step back and, and go. Am I? Organically expressing who I am Is there another area could I be Sillier could I delve Deeper into topics I think all Of those things when we when we step back
0: Yeah and I get I think you get real Tunnel vision if your whole life is comedy And you're just eating sleeping and Breathing it where you forget like Who you are with besides that Like you don't even you know it feels like Some people their whole identity is Just comedian and there is nothing Like they're never not that and I I think it was important to me to live a life where I took that out of the equation and kind of see what was there.
1: What are some other things you've revealed about yourself in the in the book that might be hard to, to well, say out loud? The,
0: well, with the depression, I think um, one thing I talk about, I write, there's one essay that's specifically about depression, and I talk about how I... Uh, have dysthymia, which is kind of like, I guess, loosely low level depression, but it's kind of persistent over time, like nothing really makes it ever fully go away. And how that has led to kind of impostory syndromes around even being able to say I'm like a good depressive, you know, because I don't, I don't necessarily have the version where I can't get out of bed or, you know, I completely disappear from, from life. But uh, I do feel like even though I'm able to show up to things I still am a lot of times very like not doing well internally. And I think learning to own that more and not be like, I'm not suffering as much as the next person. It's like, I think it's still like sometimes a little bit scary for me.
1: Yeah. And, dread being your constant companion i mean how does that not qualify for (laughs) something that uh is worthy of validity
0: well it's funny because my depression was first diagnosed when i was uh took time off from college because i was struggling with an eating disorder and i remember um like i i didn't technically qualify as a severe enough case to be in like the residential treatment program so they were like Technically, you need to be a day patient, but because I didn't like live within driving distance of the center, they're like, OK, I guess you can be a resident. So I think er, like starting my mental health journey, I was already told like, mm, technically, you don't qualify. Yes, but you're we'll even an you imposter in. about yeah, this. Yeah, we'll let you in.
1: How is the uh, eating disorder these days?
0: It's better, but I will say I still, I notice when my mood is lower or if I'm struggling in general in life, I'll sort of turn to controlling diet or exercise as a sort of default thing of like, here's something I can focus on that feels more manageable.
1: What, if any, are the feelings that are generated in your body when you make the decision to engage in that? Is there a high there? Is it just a sense of relief? What is it?
0: Yeah, I think there's a high there. I think there's a high in like, oh my gosh, I made this decision to like eat this instead of this. And now I can like see it reflected in my body. I mean, seemingly, I think some of them are distortions. But uh, I also think the tricky thing with exercise is that like, for me, being active really does help with my anxiety and depression. And I have to just make sure I don't cross that line into becoming really obsessive about it and doing it for reasons that are maybe not just feeling good.
1: Has anybody ever brought the topic up to you because they saw something going on within you and they were uh, concerned?
0: Well, I think, uh, uh, Talk, uh, going back to that idea of feeling imposter syndrome, even about the eating disorder, I remember after the fact, after I like took time off from school, I remember people being like, yeah, I actually noticed you were getting thinner. But then I just figured you run a lot like people kind of made up their own narratives for what was going on. And I think that also made me feel more disconnected from other people because I was like, oh, it feels like people don't even like really know or care what's going mm. on with me. That's that's kind of suck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I think that, the yeah, I mean that the eating disorder was kind of masking the depression, but I think the depression was there from a variety of things, one of which was like an overall disconnection from other people. Yeah.
1: I think so many of the compulsive behaviors we engage in is a way to self-medicate our yeah. depression.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think most recently I I have really gotten into online shopping where it's like, As soon as I like, even when I was writing the book, like I would have these weeks where I was just so anxious all the time. And it's like, you know, I would just go to like a website where it's like a bunch of bags I can look at. And for some reason I was like, this feels great. Just looking at all these bags. I don't know why, but it feels like this is actually the solution I always needed.
1: And would you just look or would you buy?
0: No, I like I would go through weeks where I just kept buying things and I would feel out of control and then feel deep shame about buying them. But then it just felt like it would be this like vicious cycle.
1: I, I have gone through periods where I look, but I don't buy. Yeah. And I get the high. Oh, like I, yeah. I would look at pieces of land that I could never Ooh, afford, yes. but it has an excellent view. And and I would get high just imagining me building a cabin oh, with this yeah. view. And it it's, I don't know that. That drug of oblivion, no matter what the train is that gets us there, it's, uh, I don't know, is it healthy? Is it unhealthy to do that? I
0: think it's maybe, I think fantasizing and daydreaming are healthy human instincts, and I think they're natural. But I think sometimes the internet can make you cross that line into like, I'm using this to numb myself, or I'm using this to disengage from some other part of me that needs addressing
1: what are some other uh topics that you'd like to talk about
0: i let's see i feel like there was another one that i oh saying um saying no to people is a thing i've struggled with as a people pleaser and i think only recently in life have i learned to start saying no especially professionally to things because i'm always like so honored to even be asked to do anything so i think starting to be able to own saying no to things and people it's almost gone the other extreme now where i just like kind of it's a high to get to say no
1: what are some of the things what were some of the early things you said no to and kind of walk us through the metal gymnastics and uh, emotional feelings of doing that
0: I think the first things that were hardest to say no to were shows, especially like paying shows where it felt like, oh, like, who are you to turn this down? Like, you're lucky they even thought of you and they are never going to ask you to do anything again. And it was like maybe a higher paying thing um, than I would have expected. Like, I think sometimes I still say no to those because... I either know it's going to be a bad fit, like, it doesn't seem like I am the right comedian for that event, or it doesn't seem like a venue in which I'm going to enjoy myself or for whatever other reason. Like, I think one time that happened with, like, this outdoor music festival where I was just like... turn
1: that shit down. Those people who don't know that aren't comedians, those are the worst, especially during the day.
0: During the day. And they all pay you know, really well. But then it's like, do I really want to put myself through this? I'm going to be anxious from the moment I say yes to when it is done. Mm -hmm. And so learning to say no to things like that has been really big for me.
1: How about colleges?
0: And same thing with the colleges. Like, some of them feel like they're the right setup uh, and they they know what they're doing because I feel like now colleges have all these comedy festivals and stuff. But there's still ones where it's like, you know, cafeteria in the middle of the day. And it's like, Brutal. Who is this
1: for? Brutal. Yeah, I I think sometimes the students get this nice budget. They put out this alluring paycheck. And then the day before, they're like, oh, we need to put some chairs in a circle. (laughs) And I did a college one time where I think there was eight people and they you know like the spotlight outside the hollywood bowl that shines yes. up into the sky no. that was the lighting no. was it was and then we were put on a stage that creaked every time you moved no. so whenever there was silence oh
0: my god it
1: was it was
0: i remember doing one the one nice thing about colleges is sometimes is, is they'll let you bring an opener and i always try to bring a friend you know just to be like a co-witness And uh, I remember one time I brought a friend and we showed up and there was like a big bulletin board announcing the show. And it just said, free chicken wings in really big (laughs) (laughs) words. And then our name's very small at the bottom. So basically we were opening for chicken wings.
1: I think you got the name of your next book. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anything else you'd, you'd like to share before we wrap up?
0: I think that's it. I mean, I feel like we've had a good conversation. I mean, the book is, yeah, it's just sort of a heady, uh, heady dive into my brain. And yeah, I mean, the one thing I guess I would, I touch on in, in some of the chapters about stand up. Um, one of them is just talking about, uh, like at, at, being a South Asian comedian, I think sometimes I've felt, uh, embarrassed to talk about identity or like i think when i started early on i was sort of um praised for not talking just about being a woman or being south asian like like i remember comics would be like oh it's kind of nice you don't like rely on those things as a you know uh just like a A hacky premise or yeah or like a hook um but since then i feel like now i see younger generations really like embracing identity in a way where it's not doesn't have to be the spotlight, but it's just something about them that's true and just as valid as anything else in their life. And so I I have been re-exploring kind of my own relationship with those things because I do feel like it's changed from when I started stand-up.
1: That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I think I uh, misnamed your book when when I introduced you. Uh, It's Unreliable Narrator, Me, Myself, and Imposter Syndrome. Uh, I imagine people can get it wherever they get their books, yes, but yes. warn them about online shopping. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <Yeah.
0: laughs> but you can put it in your card and then just walk away.
1: Uh, where can people find you?
0: I have a website, aparnacomedy.com. I'm on the socials at aparnapkin. Um, and I have some tour dates coming up uh, with the book release where I'll be signing copies afterwards and doing some stand up So, yeah. It's all on my website. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Paul. It's delightful.
1: Many, many thanks to her. I love when somebody uh, I, I talk to somebody and they're in a relationship and they're, they're tackling the stuff that's hard to, hard to talk about. I think it's, it's so inspiring.
0: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe.
1: This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled out by Danish Delight. And uh, she asked, maybe I missed an episode or more when you talk about this, but did you at some point in your life want kids or never? And what about your reasons not to? And do you regret not having kids? I think you would have been a wonderful father. Well, that's very nice of you to say. Um, I just never really found myself wanting to have kids. And I I honestly think... um, I'm a lot more selfish than you think I am. Uh, I'm pretty uh, I'm better than I used to be, but I think I would, one of two things, I would enjoy it and I would be so grateful that I did it and I would think, how could I have lived without this? This is amazing. Or, my God, I wish they'd shut the fuck up. What have I done? And I did not want to get into something where it was the latter. Um, because I see so many people that they just can't be present with their kids. They're just not into it. And I didn't, didn't want to be that guy. Um, I like my hobbies. I like the freedom. I like living alone, sad enough. Uh, comments to make the podcast better. I love when you tell stories from your own life or about personal stuff more, please. I'll share one more thing, and it feels like I've talked way too much about myself in this segment, but this made me laugh. I was thinking about the other day when I was like, I don't know, 23, 24, I was dating uh, this woman who was very intelligent. She was also a stand up, or she was trying her hand at, at stand up. She never really continued with it, but very bright, very, very funny. And um, it was the first woman I ever dated that that was uh, a feminist, and or at least uh, you know spoke about uh, about b- being a feminist. And I was. Well, let's just put it this way. I was fresh out of a fraternity. I'd been in a fraternity for two years in in college, and she, she, this was the thing I'm describing to you. She broke up with me a couple of days later, and it wasn't really until about a week later that I was thinking about it that I realized, oh, they were probably related. So she comes down off stage, and part of her act, she had. Uh, said the, the the phrase or the sentence, we need to end the patriarchy. And she came down off stage and I said, hey, great set. What's the patriarchy? Oh, my God. This is from the shame and secret survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Ottawa Carpenter. Uh, and we uh, we had a batch of uh, shame and secret surveys uh, filled out by by guys. Uh, there's uh, a lot of times a lack of uh, guys filling out this survey. And I'm always kind of happy when we get a nice a nice balance. Uh, he identifies as straight. He's in his 30s. Says that he was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um... He was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, When I was about eight, my sister's friend gave me oral sex. I had no idea what was going on as I didn't know anything about sex at that age. Several days later, a counselor was at our kitchen kitchen table when I got home from school. I still remember how terribly awkward and shameful it felt having to talk about my experience. Word had spread through friends that it had happened and my mother found out and called child services to help, but she never talked to me prior to the counselor showing up. It was the first salvo of shame that sent me down the path to sexual addiction. That's, that's so bizarre that your mom would not even talk to you about it first. Uh... As well, when I was 16, my father caught me masturbating in his living room and instead of doing, quote, the right thing, unquote, he came and sat down with me and started masturbating himself. I remember feeling, this doesn't feel right, but because he was the person in a position of power in my life, I went along. The shame was almost unbearable afterwards. I've struggled with thoughts of, it was my fault for not saying or doing anything. I stopped visiting him shortly after, and we lost contact forever after that. He died less than half a month after my wife and I had our first child. I never got to confront him. He's been physically, I mean, that is so fucked up. He's been physically abused and emotionally abused. He writes, My father used a belt on me and spanked both me and a couple of my friends when we were very young. Worse was receiving a carefully crafted letter from him detailing all the ways in which I had become a failure in his eyes. He must have put so much energy into it. It was written on a typewriter, and he had descended in the mail. I was somewhere between, between 10 and 12 when I got this letter. It completely devastated me. We had been the closest of friends in my mind up until that point. Was he threatening to not jerk off in front of you in his letter? Uh, any positive experiences with uh, abusers? Uh, we used to go to the baseball games all the time. He'd buy me candy bars uh, We went when we went to the dollar store. He would also give me money whenever I left and promised that there would be more each time I came to visit. I didn't know at the time that this was essentially a bribe. Darkest thoughts. I think about getting other women slash girls pregnant or, quote, teaching, unquote, girls who are in their teens about sex. I haven't acted on either of these, but I feel disgusted about it. I think I'm only starting to understand why I have these thoughts. Darkest secrets. I have talked to several girls and women on chat sites while I masturbated. Some were not 18 yet. I don't know how I was able to justify it in my mind, but I thought if they didn't want this, they would say so. It's a horrible feedback loop of the trauma I suffered as a teenager. I relive it from the other side. It makes me sick thinking about it afterwards. Well, I hope you're not doing it anymore. And that's the one thing you do have control over is to stop a pattern that's not healthy for you or, or others. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you getting teenage girls pregnant or any woman. I feel horribly dirty just typing this out. I am a deviant and wish I didn't have these thoughts. I feel shame about it, but I do have a slight understanding of why uh, these fantasies work for me. Also, bukkake—I think I'm pronouncing that right—in shot porn. Something about men's cum really turns me on, even though I am straight and would not have sex with a man. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to, and why? We may be fucked up, but we cannot control. Uh, we're, we may be fucked up, but we can control our actions. There is help out there. What, if anything, do you wish for, to redo all the damage I've done in my relationship and the damage I've likely done to young women who I've talked to on chat sites? Have you shared these things with others? Yes. How did it go? It has never gone well. It only reinforced my shame. How do you feel after writing these things down? About the same. Just wanted to get it out of me to help other people not feel alone. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? you are enough and there is help out there. Don't feel ashamed to ask for help. People want to help you. Even strangers want to help. Join a group. Amen, brother. Amen. And thank you for sharing all that stuff as difficult uh, as it was. And I think the important thing, it sounds like you're not doing that stuff anymore. And that's the most important, the most important thing. Uh, these are some more loves from uh, our friend Anita Snack. And she writes, I love when I'm able to resist the pressure and anxiety to be, quote, productive, unquote, on my days off and forgive myself instead of shaming myself for forgetting to brush my teeth. I love when a joke hits so good you can't stop laughing then you keep repeating it in your mind, which makes you laugh harder to the point where you wheeze or cry. That is a great one. I love Grady Hendrix books. I've never heard of him. I love dark, moody synth wave music and how it makes me feel like the main character of a movie. That's awesome. Thank you for those. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself uh, Journeyman Todd. He identifies as uh, straight and, and writes, but how do you classify lesbians stuck in a man's body? Men disgust me. Uh, he's in his 50s. He says that he was raised in a totally chaotic environment. He writes mental illness, alcoholism, physical and sexual abuse. Um, oh, and when I asked uh, the gender, he wrote other um, before male but joke about being a lesbian stuck in a man's body uh he was a victim of sexual abuse and never reported it coerced by teen fam teen family member into performing oral sex on him i was nine to ten sexually assaulted by the same person around age 13 forced to perform oral sex or he'd do something bad as if that wasn't bad enough I was physically abused by his dad, who was also in the family, and I believe he sexually molested yet another family member. My mother often sexualized things throughout my childhood. My dad and family did the same. I've uh, been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, my earliest memories of my mother include me being beat unconscious, being stuck with pins. Dad was a combat veteran. Uh, with flashbacks and would lash out and hit me. An uncle beat me unconscious at least once. Disassociation became my escape. My Lord. Any positive experiences with abusers? Uh, he writes, hundred percent, 110% I loved my parents, in the parentheses. Dad is dead. Mom is in a nursing home. I have early memories of seeing my dad... Uh, as a place of happiness and safety, but those end before I was five. As mentioned, my earliest memories of my mom are already traumatic. You know, do we ever talk, when we talk about the price of war, do we ever talk about the vet returning home, maybe untreated PTSD, the effect it has on the on the people around him? It's It's like all we focus on is the money. You know, or how many people die, but how many people are drowned by the ripples of the anguish and the trauma that people return home with? Darkest thoughts. I fantasize about killing sexual predators, especially men and men in positions of authority and positions of trust, such as clergy, pastors, scout leaders, teachers, and public safety, law especially. It scares me to admit that, but to deny having that feeling would be a lie. Darkest secrets. Oof. I'm a bit uncomfortable around men or forming friendships with men. My closest friends have always been women. I've had three affairs. One was a friend and mutual lust. One was a friend who was equally damaged, and I ignored healthy boundaries. One was true love, and we no longer are physical. We love each other deeply. Please don't tell my wife, who I married, on a rebound from the friend slash soulmate. My poor wife, we are not a match, and I haven't grown the balls to get a divorce. I'm an asshole for not standing my ground when my gut said no to marriage. I'm still married out of obligation, not love. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. True, safe, and loving intimacy. Spice it up? Question mark. Okay. With Jennifer Connolly, a younger Linda Carter, a mentally stable Megan Fox, a slightly older Katy Perry, you get the picture. Writing that, how does it make me feel? Sad. Nobody's fantasy should be true, safe, and loving intimacy. That should be the reality. I'm not really under, I don't really understand. That should be, oh, I see. It shouldn't be a fantasy. It should be a, a, a reality. It should not be something that we're like, oh, that's not possible. Um, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Mom, dad, uh, it's called therapy. Fucking try it. Why? Because they taught me that psychologists and therapy was taboo. Well, of course, it would expose the abuse. My bad. What, if anything, do you wish for? Loving and safe physical intimacy. Sex with my wife is safe, not loving. It's fucking, not making love. It sucks. Have you shared these things with others? Not extensively or completely. My therapist has the most clear picture. Why not complete? Uh, Why not complete self-loathing? What little I've shared about The ugliest details. I felt alone and hurting. I needed some validation, not sympathy. Maybe he wrote, while not complete. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, How do you feel after writing these things down? A mix of nausea and relief. Uh, Nausea and relief was my first band. Um, We broke up, I think, shortly after the uh, singer started doing cocaine. We just, uh, he wouldn't show up. For practice, we'd go on tour, he'd never sign up for record signings, and, uh, but then again, there weren't many people there um, because we put all our music out on 78s for Victrola's. I think that, in, in hindsight, that might have been an oversight. Continuing. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experience? Going through a divorce or breakup, question mark. Recently divorced or painfully single, question mark. Get therapy before you begin making decisions about starting a serious relationship. And then parentheses, fuck, I sound old. Dude, But couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. You know, I think a lot of times, you know, being in a relationship while you are working through really, really heavy shit, a new relationship is, you know, working through that trauma is like diffusing a bomb and entering into a relationship is like asking another person to bring another bomb to help you (laughs) diffuse your bomb. What did I just drop? And then finally, these are uh, some loves from a guy who calls himself Little Guy Eating Good. And he writes, um, after listening to your recent interview, interview with Jenny Z- Zagrino, I feel the need to write a whole list of food-based loves. And I'm only reading part of, uh, of this list. I'm going to save the other ones, and they're all great for another uh, episode. He writes, as a fat person, I've often been discouraged from showing enthusiasm for food without tackling, tacking guilt onto the end. Sometimes pleasure can only exist for fat people if it's, quote, guilty pleasure, unquote. Bullshit. Eating is divine and a deeply rooted aspect of the human experience. I love pastina. It's made of tiny pearl-shaped pieces of pasta, boiled in broth, and then swirled together with a large egg and a handful of Parmesan cheese. It is the best meal for a gray day. It sounds amazing. I love collaborating on a meal with my friends. The other day, I took all the veggies that were about to go bad out of my fridge and brought them to my friend's house, and they chopped them up and made the most delicious chili I've had in a long time. Uh, I made us hibiscus tea with rose syrup to go with it and brought a huge loaf of bread from the farmer's market by my train stop the kind of bread that crackles when you cut into it, but is still soft and cloud-like under the thick, gnawable crust. Crust. They lit candles and turned the lights off while we ate. We both got second helpings. I left feeling utterly enriched by the food and the people in my life. Dude, so good. So good. And you made me so hungry for bread. Oh, my God. Thank you to everybody who helps make this podcast possible. I appreciate it, whether you're spreading the word about the podcast through social media, turning a friend on, giving us a nice review on Apple or supporting us financially or just listening, just listening. Um, That means a lot to me. And uh, just never forget that you're not alone. And thanks for listening.